Please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes, the second chapter. We have found ourselves in the middle of a study looking at Solomon's great experiment with pleasure. And we're slowing down here to observe these, these pleasures that he tested with his great wisdom to see what in the world there is to offer, what the world has rather to offer, to give us meaning, satisfaction, and pleasure. While you're getting there to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I want to read you a quote that I came from years ago. It's anonymous. I don't know who actually said it. I've seen it actually bounced around from a few different sources. But this writer says this, quote, listen to this analysis. Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingometer. When the thingometer is put to the work in the life, put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There he is, sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by the large number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shining and new. Things, things, things. Things to clean with, things to wash with, things to clean, things to wash. Things to amuse, things to give pleasure, things to watch, things to play. Things for the long, hot summers, things for the short, cold winters. Things for the big thing in which they live. Things for the garden, things for the lounge, things for the kitchen, and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels, things on two wheels. Things to put on top of the four wheels, things to pull behind the four wheels. Things added to the interior of the thing on four wheels, and so on. We have so much stuff. It's difficult to have a proper perspective. If I can add to that quote, we have stuff to play with, a lot of it, stuff to look at, stuff to listen to, stuff to listen with, stuff to drive in, multiple things. And just look at the living room. We sit on stuff, we look at things, we watch things, listen to things, we decorate with things, we decorate our decorations. We have stuff to hold our stuff, stuff to display our stuff, stuff to give us light so we can see our stuff. Go in the kitchen, stuff to slice, stuff to dice, things to mash and chop and fry and mix with, boil, bake, refrigerate, freeze. We have lots of things to hold things, lots of stuff to hold stuff. I can't identify most of it, but I've seen it in our kitchen. We have stuff to wash, stuff to wash with. We even have stuff and things to hold the stuff and things we want to throw away. Go to the bedroom. I have to admit that one of the, one of the first epiphanies I had after I got married, that things were not going to be as they had been before, was we came from home from our honeymoon. I went to work. Kim stayed home that day to, to get our apartment decorated, and I I walked into our bedroom. Now, the first thing that was alarming to me was that we had a floral, what do you call the, uh, is it a, it's not a bedspread. There's a, there's a word, there's a French word for it. Duvet, Duvet thank you very much. This, I, I, I'm now, I have flowers in my bedroom. This was, this was a shock to me. And then we had, and I counted them, nine pillows. 
Now, as a single guy, I had slept on one pillow, and I was lucky to have the one. I could double it up, and it felt like two. I mean, this was, we had nine, none of which were for sleeping. You go in the bedroom, you have stuff to sleep on, decorations, the, uh, we have decorative pillows, stuff to wear, closets to organize our stuff, stuff to store our stuff, more lamps to see our stuff, suitcases to carry our stuff, and should we even go to the bathroom? I shouldn't say it like that. Should we even take a tour to the bathroom? <laughs> stuff to shave with, cut, curl, straighten. I, there, are, there are so many things I can't identify in there, I'm not even gonna go there. Then just go to the mailbox, you get the same number of catalogs that we get. How do these people get my address? There are so many catalogs about stuff that they want to convince us that we need. Then for, for a guy at least, there's, there's Home Depot. No man really knows what he needs until he gets to Home Depot. Ladies, you need to understand this. We go for something, but we don't know exactly what we need until we're there. And God uses intuition and guides us to the right place. And I need a chainsaw. I don't know why, I need a chainsaw today. Then there's Cabela's. I'm just gonna stop right there. Golf stores, um, bed, bath, and trust me, beyond. We are a society of things and stuff. And most of it, we get and acquire to bring us some measure of pleasure and enjoyment. And there's nothing wrong with owning something that will bring us some pleasure. The problem is when we begin placing our significance, our, our reputation, our, our enjoyment, our sense of meaning and satisfaction on things. It is true, it's all going to burn. It is true, you can't take any of it with you. In Solomon's experiment, he comes to this place where he is experimenting with stuff, with things. This is an experiment that we tend to repeat if we don't learn from his mistakes. I think the reason that this is placed very strategically in God's word at this point is to show us what we need to learn from his experiment so we don't do the same experiment and find the same disgusting disillusionment at the end. Tonight, he's looking at stuff. Look at verse four. He says, I... Enlarged my works. Now, I want you to see a theme in these next three verses, okay? I built houses, say it with me, for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all those who preceded me in Jerusalem. I also collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Stop right there. Notice the I and the for myself. That's typically what stuff ends up doing. It's selfish. It, it breeds selfishness. It breeds envy. It breeds coveting. 
Now, just for a moment, I wanna, I wanna show you something that's gonna, it's not gonna make a lot of sense with the equivalencies, but I think you're gonna get the sense. Turn back over to 1 Kings chapter 10. The book of 1 Kings chapter 10, because you have to see something, and I wanna do a, a formal equivalency at the end of, of uh, this list. 1 Kings chapter 10 gives us a catalog of Solomon's wealth. Remember, this was an agri- agriculture-based um, society. society. It, was, it was basically poor. You, you lived in a little hut, hopefully with a mat, and that was about all you had. When you come to Solomon, now this, remember, was a direct blessing of God. Remember back in 1 Kings 3 and 4, he asks God for wisdom. And God says, because you did not ask fame and wealth, I not only am going to give you wisdom, I am also going to give you fame and wealth. So this is a blessing of God. He did give him this stuff. 1 Kings chapter 10, look at uh, verse 14. Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents, that's weights, measurements of gold. Besides that, from the traders of the, and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the uh, Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. They didn't have um, um, you know, gold flaking and gold coating. These, this was gold that they beat into shields. 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield and put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear and its arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing on the six steps of the one side and on the other and nothing was like it, nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold All the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. Silver was just not even a big deal. There was so much gold. For the the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish and the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver and ivories and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. That's said another way. He was the richest man on the planet. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man a, a gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities with the king and, and with the king in Jerusalem. He had whole cities devoted just to horses. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. 
He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also, King Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported for, from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. Without even understanding all those um, equivalencies, you can see that he had quite a stash of stuff. Let me put that into perspective for you. Now, I want you to think about this. Just, just think about this. Solomon's average income was over $1 million. Now, that sounds like not a lot of money, except this. The wealthiest people in the common lowlands was the equivalent of $50 a year. So Solomon got a million dollars a year. The average income in Israel was $50 a year. See the, the gap? Put simple, Solomon could have and got everything and anything he wanted. Can you imagine? Can you imagine there, there's no limitation to buying and procuring what you want? You say, oh yeah, I can imagine that. Well, I have too, but that's not for tonight. Let's look back at Ecclesiastes chapter, um, chapter two. I wanna go through his, his wealth and then draw some conclusions. This is uh, remarkable because he, it wasn't as far removed from us as the, the, the differences of measurements might, might suggest. Basically, Solomon chose things for pleasure and he chose things for convenience. Look at back at uh, chapter two, verse four. I enlarged my works. Now, that's another way of saying I had a lot and I got more. He, he was wealthy and made money with his wealth. He was giving it away so much he had. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards for myself. Let's talk about the vineyards. For, I mean, the buildings right, right here at the beginning. I made buildings. I, I, I built houses for myself. Understand it's houses. Multiple houses for himself. 1 Kings chapter 7 tells us that his house in Jerusalem took 13 years to finish. Nothing he built, however, brought him satisfaction. So much so he would build more. I've been to uh, Solomon's pools, the, the remnants of Solomon's pools. These were, these were double the size of Olympic pools that he built just to swim in. Look also in verse 4, he, he had gardens. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. This is interesting. He, he, he plants these, these gardens. He plants fruit trees. He gets ponds in, in verse 6 of water for himself so he could irrigate the, uh, the trees. What are these gardens? Well, they were, they were two, for two things, to look at and to eat from. Just remember this. We, we take for, so for granted going down to the grocery store. Stopping by um, uh, the Seven Eleven or, or, or the Quick Trip or wherever we stop, the convenience of we need something we go get it. Th this was not a very convenient society. Solomon, though, basically procured for himself his own grocery store. He could walk out just outside of his house and have anything he wanted: fresh fruits and vegetables. These were to eat from. These were to look at. 
And then he also created an elaborate uh, irrigation system so he could have an even bigger garden. Usually you could only build something on the side of a slope. They would terrace it because the water would run off the, off the hill or by a river. Solomon actually created a whole irrigation system so he could have anything he wanted to eat anytime he wanted to eat it. He created his own grocery store. Also, these were gardens to look at. All these elaborate, you can see he brought even a zoo. He gets apes and peacocks. He had his own zoo outside. Verse seven is interesting. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. What that says is he had enough already homeborn, but he went ahead and bought some from the, from the surrounding countries. Why? He eliminated any need for himself to do any labor. This was the ultimate convenience. He didn't buy all those things that chop and dice. He had people who chopped and diced. He, he, he had people for every convenience he wanted to have. Slaves, anything he wanted to do, he just hired someone to do it. Imagine having someone, imagine having a group of people an army of people to do anything and everything that you don't want to do. That's, that's pretty cool. I don't want to do that. I'll just hire someone. I'll just buy a few slaves to do that. He eliminated the need for labor and effort so he could enjoy his life. Slaves and servants. Now, in verse um, seven, he gets into also more of his his possessions, which we look at this and say, ah, you know, this, is, this is agricultural, this is agrarian, we, we don't understand this. This is a demonstration of wealth. Remember Job, this is what Job lost that God chose to, to use as a symbol of Job losing his wealth. I possessed, middle of verse seven, flocks and herds. This is very interesting. Larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. This is again, a little bit of a jab there were only two people who preceded him in Jerusalem, his father David and Saul, right? He's basically saying, I was the richest. Nobody had more than me. I had more of these uh, flocks and herds than anyone. Uh, flocks were the smaller livestock, sheeps and goats. Herds were the larger animals like cattle. It's a great indication of his wealth. But also this, this indicates that he had his own, uh, he had his own barbecue, he has his own butchery. So he has all these trees for all of his produce, his own grocery store, and he has all of these, these herds and these flocks for this filet mignon every night if he wanted. All the meat he could want. That in itself was a massive statement of wealth in the ancient Near East. Then he gets into money. He says in um, uh, uh, verse eight, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. In 2 Chronicles 1.15, we heard already that uh, during his time, silver was as plentiful as rocks. In 1 Chronicles 1.15, it says silver and gold were like stones in Jerusalem during his reign. By the way, as a footnote, if you keep going, uh, this is for our next time. He said, I also provided for myself male and female singers. There was no radio during those days. 
No iPod, no uh, downloads. The only music that existed was live music. And he was rich enough to buy his own radio station. He, he had this, and his male and female singers, we'll get into all this later, but I need to understand that he didn't need, sorry, the female singers because the Levitical choir was all male and that had already been given to him. The point that it's making here by saying male and female singers is he made this his own private radio station. He had enough money. He was wealthy enough to have anything, and can we say it, everything that he wanted. Nothing his heart desired was denied him. Look down again at verse 10. We've mentioned this before. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Just just drink in that truth for a minute. Who can ever say that? Everything I wanted, I got. This is not like midday at Christmas when you think, well, this is good, but I could have had. He never said that. Every day was Christmas for him. Here's the question. How'd that work out for him? Did it satisfy him? Here's what I have come to conclude by talking to multiple people. This is what I've come to conclude in the recesses and dark parts of my heart. And that's this. My level is okay. But wow, would I be happier a little richer. But here's what I found. Everybody I know has that same idea. A little richer, a little more, a little more stuff will make you a little more happy. Now let's finish up what he says here in verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor. In other words, I've, I've worked hard, I've gotten it, I might as well spend it. Verse 11, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and guess what? All was vanity. Striving after the wind, there was no profit under the sun. It didn't satisfy long term. Sure, it brought satisfaction in the beginning. Sure, it was fun. Sure, it was great to have this stuff in the beginning. But it didn't make his heart happy because God has created the human heart where only he provides happiness. Turn over to chapter five. We'll get to this in a a few months here. In chapter five, verse 10, look at his conclusion. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Can you underline that? Do you believe that? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Money is never gonna make you happy, watch this, enough. I'm not fool enough to tell you that if you you make more money and you get more stuff, it's not gonna bring you some level of convenience and happiness. That would be foolish, Everyone understands that that's that's the case. And some of that's the blessing of God. Aren't you glad you live in a day with electricity? Penicillin, with the advances that we have, with being able to go to a hospital. I'm so grateful for all that. But the question is, did it bring him meaning and satisfaction? And the answer was no. And here's how we know. It's never, ever enough. Let me ask you a question, okay? Think of something you like. It could, be, uh, it could be coats, jackets, blouses, 
which is the female version of a shirt, I think. Um, uh, anything you like to collect, uh, guns, fishing rods, whatever it is. Think of something you like. Is there ever something that you've gotten and you held it in your hand and you said, that's it. I never need anything else as long as I live. I'm so content. I don't need another car. I won't need another house. These sheets, I don't care if they rot through. I will, I will sleep on them till, till, till death. I am done with stuff because this is the end. I am finally satisfied. I am finally happy getting this. Now, I know on Christmas morning that, that some kids open a present and they think that for a few minutes. I get that. Is there anything that you've ever gotten that has been the end of your wanting? We just had Christmas a few weeks ago. Are you done with your wanting? How's your wantometer? Has it, has it maxed out or is it, is it, is it flatlined? Or is there still, or is, I would bet everything in my, in my uh, billfold, it's not a lot, so it's a pretty easy bet, that if I were to sit down with any of you and I could say, all right, you have three minutes, tell me something that you want. It wouldn't take you three minutes. Nothing wrong with wanting stuff. What the problem is, is when we think this stuff is really gonna bring us lasting satisfaction. How can we change then our perspective on possessions? How can we change our perspective on money? Earning, investing, accumulating, spending, it claims so much of our attention. By the way, there's nothing wrong with money itself. There's nothing wrong with making money. We, we read this morning the parable of the talents. Jesus actually exonerates and glorifies and says it's a good thing to invest money to make more money. There's nothing wrong with that. 1 Timothy chapter six is so often misunderstood. Some people think that 1 Timothy 6.10 says, money is the root of all evil. It's not. What is it? The love of money is the root of all evil. You've heard it before. I remember the first time I heard my pastor in high school say, our church, a church in America has a bad case of affluenza. And he's right. The sins associated with money are so prolific. Coveting, jealousy, stealing, prostitution and adultery, lying, greed, exploitation, manipulation of others. Worry, not taking care of those in need, not giving to the Lord. So many sins associated with the love of money. I have a friend who is a, who's a, a, a man of, of pretty, pretty good means. And he's taught me a lesson I'll never forget. I've seen him be so generous and give to so many causes, so many people, to, to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And one time I just said, help me understand this. You, 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 there just seems to be no end to your giving. Not, not, not that you have so much money that you can't run out. I'm just saying you, you don't stop. He says, well, it brings me joy. and I'll never forget what he says. He says, it's just money. It's just money. His perspective, because he has it, is it's no big deal. The problem is, is when we don't have what we think will bring us satisfaction, we think it will bring us satisfaction. Nothing that you will ever buy or own will bring you lasting satisfaction. It's never, ever enough. There's always something else. I remember my first car. It was a used 
Nissan Sentra. And I, uh, I love this, this car. It, uh, it was a used car. I actually thought it, had, I thought it had air conditioning because there was a blue side and a red side. I didn't know that there had to be an AC that you punched there. So, you know, there was no air conditioning, even though I thought there was. But I love that car. Learned to drive stick on that car. This is the way my dad uh, treated me. It was a, a five-speed. We went down and got it, and I'd never driven one in my life. And he said, I'll see you at home. <laughs> and I got home eventually. So, but I remember getting that car and being so ecstatic. I had my first car. And then I wanted different stuff to make my car better. And it just never ended. It never, ever ended. I remember going from the height to thinking, I really don't need anything else. I, am, I have a car. To them wanting stuff for my stuff. It's very interesting that the lives of the richest people are the ones that are always on the lifestyles of the rich and famous where they're, 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 their lives don't end well. Why are the richest people in the world so messed up? Yet in the same breath, let me remind all of us that you are very wealthy. Every person sitting in here, according to the biblical definition, is rich. I know what you're thinking. Don't throw tomatoes. I know, yeah. So you, well, you're, you may be talking about the people around me, Rick, but, but I'm not rich. Well, I came across... Uh, a little description by a man named Steve Williams a few years ago. He says, let's consider the rich young ruler. Remember the man that Jesus called a rich young ruler? He was rich. He was one of the wealthiest in uh, the ancient Near East at that time. He says this, no matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery. He could not turn on a light, buy penicillin. He could not hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water. He could not type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane. He couldn't sleep on an inner spring mattress. He could never talk on the phone. If he was rich, then what are we? He goes on, from the standpoint of material wealth, Americans have difficulty realizing how rich we are. Going through a little mental exercise uh, can help us count all our blessings Imagine doing the following, and, uh, and you will see how daily life is for as many as a billion people in the world, and certainly the people of the Bible. Ready? Take out all the furniture in your home, except for one table and a couple of chairs. Use blankets and pads for your bed. Take away all your clothing except for your oldest dress suit or blouse or shirt. Leave only one pair of shoes. Empty the pantry, empty the refrigerator except for a small bag of flour, some sugar, and a little salt. A few potatoes, some onions, and a dish of dried beans. Dismantle the bathroom, shut off the running water, remove all the electrical wiring in your house. Take away the house itself and move the family into the tool shed. Place your house in a shanty town. Cancel all subscriptions to newspapers, magazines, book clubs. There's no great loss because none of you can read anyway. Leave only one radio for the whole shanty town. Move the nearest hospital or clinic 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. 
Throw away your bank books, stock certificates, pension plans, insurance policies. Leave the family a cash hoard of $10. Give the head of the family a few acres to cultivate on which he can raise a few hundred dollars of cash crops a year, a third of which will go to the landlord, a tenth of which to the money lenders. Lop off 25 years of life expectancy and then you can see how rich we really are. Jesus in Matthew 6 defines wealth. If you have a place to sleep tonight, if you have more, uh, let, me go, let me go beyond that. He says, if you have a place to sleep tomorrow night, you know where you're going to sleep even tomorrow night. And you have more than one things to, uh, thing to wear and you know where your next meal is coming from with great surety. If that's the case, biblically, you're wealthy. Have you ever really thought about what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? He taught us to ask God, give us this day our daily bread. You know why he said that to those men? Because they were dependent on God to feed them that day. They didn't have a pantry full of stuff. How often have we thanked God for our meals without ever asking them, asking God for them? Some of us have. I don't want to be uh, too extreme on this, but I wonder how many of us have woken up in the morning and said, God, if you don't feed me today, I won't eat. You will have to do something supernatural for me to eat today. That was the case in most of the people in Solomon's day and certainly in the day of Jesus. So much so, he said, one of the things you should learn to pray is, God, feed me today. How do we back up from this and look at Solomon? Solomon said, I know what you're thinking. If I get everything I want, then I won't want anything else. His, his point is, yes, you will. You'll want satisfaction, and that can only come from God. It can only come from God. Here's a few questions to think about. What do you want? What do you want and is it necessary? What will you do to get it? Will you go into debt to get it? Will you lie to get it? Will you save for it instead of saving for other things that might honor God? What sacrifices will you make for the kingdom of God? Those are very good evaluation questions. The giving, and we'll, tell, we'll talk about this next week in, uh, in our stewardship series, but the issue of giving in the New Testament is never a percentage. I know we talk about the tithe, and you, you really don't want to talk about tithe because that really amounts to about 36% if you put all the, that together. The tithe was a tax. It was a temple tax. I don't even like to use the word tithe because it was a tax for the maintenance of the temple. What Paul instructs the Corinthians to do is way more intense than a tithe. He says, we need to give and share. It's not just giving to the church. It's finding the needs in our community of believers and share to the point of sacrifice. The point is, we don't do something for ourselves so that we can do something in the name of the Lord for someone else. You've heard the old adage, it's better to give than receive. You know what it is? It really is. 
You, you'll someday, students, you'll someday get to the point. You, you, some of you may be there now where when it comes Christmas time or it comes to birthday time, that you receive so much more joy out of giving something than you ever do by receiving something. We need to overcome materialism because it's, it's pervasive in all of our hearts. But before we overcome it, we have to back up and say, why are we so materialistic? Is it pride? Do we want to look like we have more? Or, or we, we measure our success by what we own or how much we make? I was uh, on a flight uh, just a few months ago and was sitting across from uh, uh, two gentlemen who, um, I don't know if you've ever flown with, with people who don't really understand volume. Uh, I, I don't think they really meant to control their volume because they were talking about you know, stocks and portfolios and what they'd made last year and what they were gonna do and how they could defer taxes. And they were, they were in categories that I could not track mathematically. But they were going on and on and on, just bright, and it was apparent it was so apparent to me and about 30 people around them that they were trying to one-up each other, that their significance was based on how much they could make, their wisdom and how much they could, they could make. Let me go back again. Please don't misunderstand. Jesus exonerates, Jesus honors, Jesus uses as an illustration investing and making money. You should make all the money you can so the kingdom of God is, is bettered by your efforts. But if we make money to satisfy ourselves, we are told by Solomon, listen up, it's not gonna happen. It's steam off a cup of coffee and it's gone. <clears throat> Several years ago, I knew a man who, he was one of the wealthiest man, men I'd ever met in my life. And he developed a very aggressive form of, of liver cancer. He uh, didn't fly to different parts of the world to, for these specialists of doc, specialist doctors. He flew them in to see him. And it became apparent that no one was going to be able to, to heal this aggressive liver cancer. I think he, he only lived about two months after it was found. I heard him talking to a group of people um, just a few weeks before he died about the regret that he was dying with so much money. And this is what I heard him say. I wish I were dying as a poor man because I'd given all my money away for the kingdom of God. What are we doing on this planet? This isn't a call to poverty. This is a call not to love money. We can have money. I hope you have money to make money to make more money so that missionaries can go on the field so that people can have what they need so that the body of Christ can truly be what it's supposed to be and care for one another's needs. But the main issue here is not what you do with your money. The main issue with Solomon is do you think your money or more money might actually bring you something that it can't bring you? Just interview someone who's made what you think would make you happy and ask them if they're finished. If God has blessed you, praise God. I know for a fact, I know people in our church who've been blessed with, with um, hard work and investing and money and I've seen them turn that into kingdom investments. And please don't understand this as some kind of manipulative ploy. I hope that you're able to use some of that money in ways that no one ever knows about. 
Here's a good test for your heart, all right? Here's a great test for your heart. Find someone in need that you know is truly in need. Put some cash in an envelope. Give it to someone who can give it to someone who can give it to someone who can give it to someone who really needs it so that it can never be traced back to you and see what that does to your heart. If we, if we use our money as a means of self-exaltation and even pride in the giving of it away, where have we really won? What have we gained by that? We gotta listen to Solomon. He said, I had all I wanted. And you know what? It was striving after wind. It's like a kid chasing the wind. Doesn't ever get what he wants. It's like that little kid who, you know, you're in the nursery and you blow bubbles and the kids grab the bubbles and they're so excited and they open their hands and they don't understand why nothing's there. That's stuff. Now, please, again, I'm so fearful of being misunderstood. We're gonna get to parts of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is gonna say, enjoy the labor of your hands. There's nothing wrong with having something nice and enjoying something nice if you're giving God glory for it and magnifying God because of that possession. It's possible. I love John Piper's article. You can drink orange juice to the glory of God. Everything can be done with an eye that God is behind it. But excesses are very hard to justify before God. What sacrifices will we make for the kingdom of God? And what are we really chasing? Now, this is not a call to go home and sell your stuff and sell your house and uh, find the smallest apartment you can and, and uh, put 12 people in it. And That's not the call. If you have a nice home, use it for God. If you have a nice car, drive people places for God. The issue is the heart, not the amount. The issue is the heart, not the checking account. Notice Solomon nowhere here says, so my conclusion was to become poor, right? He didn't download his stuff, but he did understand and contextualize his stuff to the point where he said, ah, now I get it. It's fun to have, fun to use, but I need to share it with others. I need to work for the glory of God and I need to make sure that my significance, satisfaction, and desires are not bound up in stuff or the potential to get more stuff. And again, listening to Jesus, invest your money, make more money, make lots of money and spend it on the kingdom of God. Because you cannot take it with you. What we said this morning, what do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? That's how you measure your value and your worth. What do you have that money can't buy and death cannot take away? It's interesting that our Lord didn't even have a place to lay his head. The king of the universe, the owner of all the universe had no possessions except his clothes and those were gambled for as he was dying. If we learn anything about money from the Lord, it is this. It's not satisfying. Do you really understand that everything you ever wanted that would make you happy 
you're going to get in heaven? Do you think it's coincidence that John said that the roads in heaven are streets of gold? You know what his point is? You're going to have everything you want, everything you need, all of your conveniences met when you get to glory. Why do we keep using our means on this earth to try to make earth like heaven? It's not ever going to work. So, disclaimer again, don't find your satisfaction in money, Solomon says. Don't become poor. There's no, there's no value in just going out to, down to the plaza and giving out $1,000 bills. Is there a $1,000 bill? Giving out $100 bills and, and uh, just getting, becoming poor overnight. There's no value in that. But use what you have for the glory of God. I promise you, according to the authority of Scripture, that will bring you more satisfaction than hoarding. But that can only come from a heart that's been bought by the blood of Christ. Where you value, your, your worth is measured by the cross, not by your portfolio. On the other side, if you do have more than others, if any place in the world, the church of the living God is not a place where we measure our significance under or over people who are less or more fortunate than us with means, right? This is not where we evaluate stocks and bonds and portfolios and investments and houses and boats and cars. This is where we come and love each other, find needs, and do everything we can to meet them. I can promise you that will bring you happiness. It's funny, even as soon as I say that, I see some heads just nodding north and south. You know what that's like. But if you're a hoarder of money, you will become a Grinch. You'll be dissatisfied, unhappy, and unpleasant. What do you have that God hasn't given? And what do you have that will go with you into eternity? That's how you need to measure your true net worth. Father, give us insights into our bank accounts, into our money, our investments, our savings. Give us insight into our needs as we'll be studying in the next few weeks in our equipping hour, Lord. Help us to get traction on debt, get traction on uh, unwise purchases, get traction on things that have not pleased you so that our finances can be in order so that they're not a distraction. So that a lack of money is not a distraction and the inability to manage money for your kingdom is not a distraction. Lord, I'm thankful for the, the wealth that you've given us in this church. Lord, thank you that few of us, if any of us, woke up this morning saying, give us this day our daily bread or we will starve. Thank you for our homes. Heaters in a, in a season like this. Air conditioners in a very warm summer. Thousands of conveniences. Teach us to glorify you in the recognition of those. To crawl into a warm bed on a cold night and to say thank you, Jesus. To enjoy a hot cocoa, a hot cup of coffee on a cold night, 
and say, what a God who would give us such sweet kindnesses and things to share in fellowship. To wear a nice sweater or a jacket and to smile at you and say thank you. You have given us so much. Lord, how could we but not find those with whom we could be generous? We pray for your kingdom work. That the church is supported, that missionaries are sent because of the kind generosity of your people. We thank you for this initiative that we're trying to please you by reducing our debt. We thank you for the great thought of what it will be like to use those freed up resources to make much more than we can now out of Jesus' name. So, in all of this, give us the right perspective on money. Give us the right perspective on saving. The right perspective on giving. Even the right perspective on receiving. Lord, I'm so grateful for Mission Road Bible Church and the precious people you've brought together to be so much like that church in Acts that shared all in common so that all needs were met. Help us to know each other well enough to even meet those needs, to pray for those things. And Father, let no one go unsatisfied because they don't know your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is wisdom, who is satisfaction, who brings such pleasure Oh, how we love him. And if all was taken away from us, he would be enough. So dismiss us now with thoughts of how to manage our money better for your glory and not to do what Solomon did and to learn from his lesson. That though he sought to bring himself lasting pleasure in things and stuff, it didn't work. Bless us with the wisdom that we need to make these conclusions. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.